Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Appraisal Buzzcast. We appreciate all the feedback we've been getting. If you aren't already subscribed, make sure to do so below so you'll get notified of the latest Buzzcasts. Today, we'll be speaking with Joan Trice, CEO of Altera Group, and Ed Pinto, Resident Fellow and the Director of Housing at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be discussing zoning and the history of it in the appraisal industry. Joan, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Jim, and good morning, Ed. As always, and especially since you're my neighbor, I I, I learned so much <laughs> uh, hanging out with you. And I was really shocked when you said that zoning is really the culprit in a lot of the discriminatory practices that remain in real estate. So share the history of that with our audience. Well, thank you, first of all, for the opportunity to be on the uh, Buzzcast. I would describe that a little bit differently. I would describe it that the basis of zoning in the United States was for discriminatory purposes. And that has had a legacy that continues to this day. But figuring out what that legacy is, is not the easiest thing. But you have to understand how we got to where we are. And so how did we get here? Well, zoning that didn't exist particularly in what's known as the common law. Uh, it was actually imported from Germany. And those of you who know that Tobias, who's director of research at the housing center at AEI, uh, I'm always joking with him because he's from Germany, that all these bad ideas that came from Germany. And so this one was imported in the late 1800s. And it started being utilized by a number of localities And it really hinges on what's known as the exercise of the police power. You had things called nuisances. Nuisances were somebody was polluting the land, they were making noise, they were emitting smoke, whatever. And these were nuisances, houses that, you know, that were rendering fat from carcasses of cows and things like that tanning leather. And so there was always an understanding that police power at the state and local level extended to things like nuisances. But the idea that you could actually say what you could build on a piece of property was a relatively new concept. And it started out with things that were somewhat like nuisances. They were noisy buildings like large apartment buildings. Think of them back in the early 20th century or uh, uses that might be inconsistent with the location, you know, a gas station in the middle of a residential neighborhood or something like that. They were things that sort of were light nuisances. And so the idea was, well, we can control those. But at the same time in the early 20th century, and it was a continuation of practices that had been going on for some time, there was a desire to keep neighborhoods segregated. And there was an attempt to use zoning to do exactly that in the first decade or two decades of the 20th century. And the Supreme Court in 1917 said, no, no, you can't use zoning to say that, you know, blacks can't live in a zone. That's a violation of the 14th Amendment. And so that slapped that down. And so thought leaders, progressives, and I use that term as what it meant back in the 1920s. And so uh, Herbert Hoover was a progressive, as were many, Follett from Wisconsin. There were many progressives, uh, Wilson, et cetera, that were progressives. And they thought that they could solve any problem just through reason and coming up with a set of rules. And you implement those rules and everything would be fine. 
And so they said, well, we have a way to solve this problem without using this explicit discriminatory language. In effect, we'll just make it so expensive to build new housing that Blacks can't afford it. And by the way, about Russians of the lower class, Southern Italians and, and Puerto Ricans and many others. But largely it was, it was Blacks. And this coincided with the great Black migration that occurs in the first 30, 40 years of the 20th century. That migration is led by the Industrial Revolution that's occurring largely in the North with automobiles, steel making, all of the things that are needed, tire making, and all of those factories largely were in the North. Well, let me let me ask you a question. You said it was expensive, and I, I, I was just doing a little research uh, before we got started. It said the way that they discriminated was if you wanted a variance to the zoning, they made the fee so high that anybody in the affordable housing sector couldn't afford the fees to challenge and ask for a variance. That was decades and decades later. So now we're in 1921. Okay. Federal government get involved in this because this is the part that's surprising to just about everyone. Okay. Think zoning is a local activity, state and local activity. Right. Besides the police power under state and local uh, sovereignty or of state sovereignty. And the answer is Herbert Hoover, Department of uh, Secretary of Department of Commerce, decides that zoning would be a good idea. So he sets up a zoning commission that he appoints, that reports to him, and it has all the leading lights of the day, who are these progressives, that are thinking, we can solve this zoning issue, but underneath the patina of, oh, we're doing it, to protect property values, we're doing it to do this, it's for noise and it's for nuisance abatement and things like that. It's really to keep blacks out of the neighborhoods. We know that because one of the things that I did was going through the history related to uh, what the Commerce Department was doing. I found all the various code words that they were using. And then I was looking at documents that were written about the same time in particular, a document written uh, by uh, appraiser, a very well-known, famous appraiser, McMichael. And McMichael wrote a series of appraisal manuals over decades and decades from the 20s to the 60s. But he also was uh, an urban land economist. And he wrote two very long treatises on urban development, one in 1923 and one in 1927. And when you compare the language from the 1923 document to the 1927 document, the 1923 document is all about how ozoning is this and that, and it can't be used for racial things and all of these things that you would expect. You get to the 1927 version, and it's all about stopping the Black invasion. Zoning can stop. Explicitly? Explicit. I mean, I'm I'm taking it down. Not even subtle. Yeah, okay. Well, Not even subtle. So, so that's really the beginning. Take the break and we'll talk about uh, why it was more expensive. Okay. All right, Jim. Thanks, Joan. Stuck in the appraisal management technology dark ages using spreadsheets or antiquated software, you should meet EVO. EVO is the most innovative appraisal management technology on the market, trusted by lenders and AMCs, and is loaded with mind-blowing features like sophisticated decisioning algorithms to select the best appraiser for each order, the ability to configure forms and fields in real time, a user role-based design, and the industry's only compliance guarantee. 
Find out more at globaldms.com or call 877-866-2747. Back to you, John. All right. Well, I'm just going to turn it right back to Ed because I interrupted him mid-fault. So, Ed, pick up where you left off. So, the the first this first key of uh, zoning, which became uh, it, it, zoning by definition is exclusionary. It excludes other uses. And so, up to the exit, the creation of zoning and the institution of zoning, if you wanted to build a one-unit uh, building, a, a single-family attached, a, a duplex, a triplex, a quadruplex, a small apartment building, you could build those on property. And in particular, you could build, if you were building single-family houses, no one thought twice about building duplexes right next door uh, or even triplexes. They were commonly intermixed. And if you go back to neighborhoods that date from the teens and the 20s and the tw- early 20th century, you'll find them side by side. But that allowed renters to come in that allowed lower cost housing, a duplex would sell for less, a row house would be less expensive than a single family detached. And so if you wanted to keep this invasion at bay of of blacks, which was the explicit desire, then you could do that through zoning. How did you make it more expensive? Well, all of a sudden you'd say, well, the lot has to be a certain size and it has to be a single family detached house can't be a row house, can't be a duplex, can't be a quadruplex, triplex. And there is a side lot of this, a front lot of that, a back lot of that. There might even be a requirement for the house to be a certain size, all a certain height requirements. All of these things made it more expensive. Now, today we view it these, these houses because they were built uh, 90 to 100 years ago as being relatively inexpensive in the day. But compared to what Blacks who were migrating from the South could afford, they could not afford a single family detached house. And of course, since there weren't any rentals allowed in those zones, they could not afford to live in those zones. In fact, they were the multifamily housing, which is now defined as really two units and above, are forced into their own zones. And those zones were put next to industrial areas, the railroad tracks, and things like that. So you ended up with sort of a double impact. This still allowed the owner of the property by right to build whatever they wanted to build within the zoning constraints. And so housing, a lot of housing was built in the 20s. And then there was a down period in the 30s and 40s. But during that down period, FHA takes over the reins from the Commerce Department once FHA is established in 1934. And it inherits the zoning mantle from the Commerce Department. And it is very explicit about what it will allow financing on. And it will not allow financing if there are Blacks in the neighborhood and they're going to go to the same public school. It will and that's not, from FHA? It's explicitly in the FHA. Oh, oh that's crazy. That's, yeah, that's- I mean, there, there's very explicit language in the FHA underwriting manual in the 30s and the 40s uh, that basically says, we will not lend in an area that does not have legally binding restrictions on Blacks not living in that neighborhood and land use you know, restrictions that run with the uh, title of the land. Uh, we will not lend in a neighborhood that doesn't have zoning that restricts the zone to single family detached housing. And so they, and they actually forced the city of Los Angeles uh, who was a holdout to in the 30s 
to change their zoning. He said, look, if you don't change your zoning, no FHA financing in LA. Wow, that, that's and crazy. And so, we need to take another break. But when we come back, here's what I want you to think about while, while, we're, while we're taking a break. Houston is the only jurisdiction that I know of that has no zoning whatsoever. And I'm curious what goes on there compared to all the other jurisdictions in the United States. So, Jim, and then we'll come back to you, Ed. Thanks, John. In uncertain times, you need a certain partner. You don't have to sacrifice top-notch coverage for an affordable premium. Intercorp has all the options and is sure to have just the right one to fit your specific needs. They provide the appraisal profession with competitive best-in-class ENO coverage solutions nationwide. Having served the insurance needs of the industry for more than 25 years, Intercorp understands the risks you face every day. Whether you're an individual appraiser, appraisal firm, residential or commercial, or an AMC, visit intercorpinc.net to get a competitive quote today. Joan? Thank you, Jim. So, Ed, what are your thoughts about Houston? Do you Are you familiar with I, I am. Before we get to that, I did find the quote from McMichael, 1920. Okay. okay. And this is in the section on zoning, which there really wasn't a section in 1923. He now has a whole chapter. Neighborhoods populated by white persons have been invaded by colored families. And often aristocratic residential districts have suffered tremendous lessening of property values because of the appearance of the Negro resident. Elsewhere, he used, well, he uses the term invaded right there. And that's that's telling you what the purpose of the zoning uh, aristocratic. Wow. And so the the one other thing before we get to Houston. So, as I mentioned, this is developing in the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Something else happens in the 50s. And so about two months ago, uh, we decided to start figuring out, well, what happened in the 50s? So up to this point, you still had the right to build. You could only build what they said you could build, but you still had the right to do it. And so if you had a piece of property that was zoned single family detached and you could build eight units an acre, you could build thousands of homes. And so there was plenty of housing that was built other than during the Depression and the war. Um, Lots of housing was built in the 20s and the 50s and even the 60s. But something started happening in the 50s and we surmised that it must have started in California. Why? Because California home prices, particularly in San Francisco area, started deviating from the rest of the country back in the 60s. And so what we found was that there were two things happening. One, there was a view by elites again that single family tracks were bad. They were sprawl. They were the slums of the future. Now, by the way, these houses that were the slums of the future are now selling in San Jose for $1.3 million. But right. these are the slums of the future. And they basically started writing about this both at the elite universities in California and elsewhere in the elite media. And they were it was a drumbeat. And then at the same time, there was an attempt in San Francisco to build a motel on in the city of San Francisco in a district that was zoned for hotels. Now this sounds crazy today, but back in the 1960s, a motel was not a hotel. It was a new thing. It was a new thing. It didn't exist much before that. And basically the neighbors said, wait a minute, this isn't allowed in the zone. And they go to the zoning board and they say, this isn't allowed. And the zoning board says, 
to the council of the zoning board, well, what are we to do? And they said, you get to define what a hotel is and what a motel is. You define it. Well, that was the beginning of NIMBYism. What happened was these neighbors find out, I think it was Van Noy Street, one of the main drags in, in uh, San Francisco, they find out that they can start slowing down this process. And the zoning departments and the board start finding out they have these discretionary powers they never really thought they had. And so they start adding stuff to the process. So it now shifts from by right to by leave. You can only do it with permission. So now you have to have a neighborhood hearing. You have to have a planning board approval. You have to have site plan approval. You have to, all the fees start coming in. You want to change. That's where all that comes in. Now, that wasn't so much race-based as it was, oh, we just we just like it the way it is. We think it's going to create more population. We don't like population. You know, all the things. There was the population bomb in the 1960s, the book written. Uh, we're running out of things, et cetera. And so there was this view that we just want to not let anything change. And that took over San Francisco and much of the West Coast and other parts of the country. So now we get to, and, and San Francisco has suffered in the West part of the country has suffered. You know, we talk about nimbyism has a special meaning in California known as banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. So we <laughs> nimbyism, which is sort of a garden variety stop things to we are going to keep it so you can't build anything. And to the extent you do build something, it's going to take you 10 years. And literally, it does take you 10 years. If you're within roughly 50 miles of the coast in California, it takes you 10 years. So Houston, these were all local decisions made you know, by lo local jurisdictions, starting at the state level and then uh, being delegated to the local level. So many states didn't have as many zoning restrictions as California and New York and other places. There's a wide range of, of, of those restrictions. And then many states had relatively few. And then some states where it was delegated to the cities, the city didn't take the option of setting up a zoning ordinance. And so, yes, it's true that Houston doesn't have a zoning ordinance, but it does have something that is somewhat similar in that within Houston, there are these land use areas that set up uh, requirements that apply to that little, that area. It's like a PUD and it actually has legal recognition. And I think they can do some taxing for some certain things and they put in the provisions, but those provisions in general are not the full range of all of the bureaucracy and, and fees and expenses and rules and regulations that you get when you have a centralized zoning, we'll call it zoning very light. And therefore it's much easier to build in a place like Houston than, than it is elsewhere. But having said that, it's also relatively easy to build in Austin. Right now, Austin has, along with Raleigh, have the highest percentage of new construction as a percentage of sales of, of, of homes in the country. And we thought it was uh, when we did a study a couple of years ago and Austin and, and Raleigh had 25 percent of the home sales were new in a given year. We thought, well, that, that's off the charts. Well, they're at 40 percent today and they can't keep up with the demand at 40 percent. So that's what's happening in Texas. OK, well, we're, we're running out of time. So let's wrap up with this question. 
since this is occurring at the local county level, how in the world do you solve this problem and eliminate the discriminatory nature of zoning? So I think the answer to that has to be local. The We know from the history of the federal government, going back a long time, you just have to look at what happened in zoning. This all, you know, this was all supposedly good, you know, viewed very positively by the elites back in the 1920s, but it was it had a very different result. Well, likewise, I've gone back and looked at 40-something federal multifamily and, and community development statutes that have been passed since 1933. And they all, when they were passed, were, this is going to solve the problem. Yet, here we are uh, 90 years later, and we're still talking about the president just came out with a budget that has hundreds of billions of dollars to do the exact same things that these 40-something statues supposedly were going to fix, and they haven't fixed it. But worse than that, those 40-something statutes, many of them have gone down in history as colossal mistakes. High-rise public housing, model cities, the 1968 Housing Act that led to the near destruction of Detroit and Chicago, immortalized in a book from 1972 called Cities Destroyed for Cash, the Scandal of FHA, the uh, low-income housing tax credit, which has just perpetuated segregation in multifamily. I could go on and on and on. So what's the answer? The answer is the answer it's always been in the United States, which is you have to go local. And so you have to fight it at a trench local level, which is, you know, Minneapolis has made changes. California has made some changes on accessory dwelling units that's led to a big increase. That's not going to solve the problem, but it's, it's a step in the right direction. D.C. has done some of that. Montgomery County's done some of that. Oregon has done some things with light touch density. There are other places that are doing things. Durham, you have to do it community by community, state by state. If the federal government does it, all I can say is history has told us they will screw up. Yeah, well, this is a real challenge. And uh, I got to thank you, Ed, for joining us today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. And I know you've got a whole lot more to say. So we will absolutely have you back real soon. Thanks, Joan. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Joan. That really was a very interesting thing. And, and we could have gone an hour with this. It, it was really it was really yeah. interesting to get a look back at that. We really appreciate that. Well, everyone, make sure you stay up to date with the latest at the buzz at appraisalbuzz.com. Go on the forums. Tell us what you thought about today's buzzcast. And thanks again. Have a great day. If you've grown frustrated with endlessly pursuing new appraisal work and not reaping any of the benefits, Metro West is here to help. They understand and work to alleviate the pain points commonly felt by appraisers to enable personal and financial growth for their staff. After all, they've been owned and operated by appraisers since the company opened in 1987. Metro West Appraisal is an equal opportunity employer, and they're always looking for certified residential real estate appraisers to join their team. Visit metrowestappr.com careers or email careers at metrowestappr.com.